0: There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity.
1: That's really profound. Wow. Very. Expanding, expanding reality. Expanding reality.
0: Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, we have the psychic doctor, Dr. Ian Rubenstein. And he is going to tell us all about his story on this one. Full disclosure here, guys, this is going to be a two-parter. They will be released as close together as I can possibly manage, but I've already set up a second episode with him uh, that we haven't done yet, so that's why you're getting this first one, which is his story. Guys, his story is fascinating. The synchronicities, the way that... This man has just all of it pretty much laid out for the direction that he goes on. And we talk about this and his recognition of this a little bit later on in his story. So uh, you guys sit back, enjoy this. This guy is fascinating. Look forward to more. We had a lot that we couldn't cover in this one, thus the part two. So without any further ado, guys, Dr. Ian Rubenstein. Ladies and gentlemen, extremely excited to present to you Dr. Ian Rubenstein ruben stein <laughs> welcome <laughs> welcome to the show my it. friend thank you so much yeah. for joining us how's your day going it's, over there
1: uh good it's it's nice to, to be back speaking to you brandon Yes, so we're sir. gonna have a good we're gonna have a good chat today, aren't
0: we? I am really looking forward to it. You are a fascinating guy. You've got some you've got just an incredible story, and I cannot wait to get into it. So my audience is just gonna love you. So let's start with a little bit of background on yourself for the audience that might not know you just yet.
1: Okay, so I'm a 66 year old uh, primary care physician. I work in uh, London, England. Um, which uh, so I'm a general practitioner, as we call it. I work in the National Health Service, which is our socialized healthcare system which means that I look after, well, together with a, with a bunch of ten, 10 of us, 10 doctors and um, three nurses, we look after about 14,000 patients situated in northeast London. Uh, it's a mixed area, uh, not a very well-off area. We've got areas of quite high deprivation, about 130, 40, 50 different languages spoken in our part of the world. And uh, it's uh, been there since 1984, so it's uh, it's interesting. It's busy, very busy.
0: I would think so, yeah, and especially yeah. with everything going on right now, no matter how you feel about it, something's going on, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So what got you into the medical field in the first place? Okay, so,
1: well, it wasn't really uh, – well, I mean, I guess it was partly because my father had rheumatoid arthritis. He was a London cab driver, and um, – he had to, uh, he, he couldn't work because of it. And I think that I always thought I was looking for the cure. But but to be honest, um, I don't recall ever having any amazing uh, feelings for becoming a doctor. Um, but I, I guess the people around me could see that I was heading that way. Um, I mean, I come from a, a large Jewish family and every Jewish mother wants her son to be a doctor. Then my mum says she didn't want me to. But um, certainly when I was at school, I was encouraged to go into medicine. Uh, by my teachers uh, 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 the reason why I chose medicine was because I was um, not really good at maths and I was doing sciences because in those days uh, if you were a, a boy it was so, you, you, even though I was good at history and english really but um uh, the, the, the sheer power of science in the 1960s was so uh, enthralling it was like the modern wizardry and I was captivated by uh you know the the moon landings all this stuff so i wa- i really was wanted to go into science even though i struggled with the maths but I, I had the great good fortune to be reached by a good maths teacher a guy called mr brewer who got me through my maths exams but it was never my strong point um so i ended up uh heading towards a, a degree a biological sciences degree and i wanted a, a job at the end of it because of the insecurities i had with my father losing his job and I, you know, so, I mean, a, a good, a good, secure job is becoming a doctor. It's a biological sciences. That, that's, that's my rationalization for going that way. But um, when I was at school, uh, you know, I was interested in all sorts of things. And uh, one of the things that got my interest was, was consciousness, because I grew up in the 60s when people were, were taking acid and stuff like that. And I was never into that. And I always felt that as human beings, we had much more power than, 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 we, knew, than we thought we had. Um, and I remember one of my friends, Alan Stockbridge, who was at school. He was taking acid, and I said, "Look, man, you don't don't need to do this. Let me hypnotise you. You can have a good trip, you know, just using hypnosis." And and I hypnotised him. He did. And after that, he told all his friends. And then I ended up um, having a, a load of school uh, kids at school wanting me to hypnotise them. And it was quite funny, really, because I went to quite a rough school, and uh, to stop myself being beaten up in the schoolyard at recess. Uh, i ended up working in the school library which had the bonus that you could do your homework um see so when you got home at the end of the day you could just read or watch tv and not have to do your homework there um and i mean i i wore glasses i was a bit overweight i was geeky uh, and i was the most unlikely person to be, become suddenly this this guru because all of a sudden the kids started coming up to me and wanting me to hypnotize them and it reached a point where there were long lines of kids waiting in line for me to, to hypnotize them, and you couldn't get down the school corridor. I mean, it was it was astonishing.
0: What were some of the things that you would hypnotize these kids to see or do or anything like that? Like, well, why would you they name it? Coming back, you to name you it. Experience? I mean, the
1: very first person I hypnotized was a girl called Kathy, and uh, I got her to imagine she had a steel rod in her arm. Then we got the school football captain uh, to try and bend her arm, and he couldn't. Uh, so that was Im- Im- impressive. Well, you know, I guess. <laughs> imagining they were
0: chickens. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> like, you can imagine um, a child with that power and what. They yeah, absolutely. It.
1: <laughs> or or it was all making someone invisible. You know, like so they couldn't see something. They try and sit in a chair, and someone would be. I mean, stuff like that.
0: That is um, one of the things I am fascinated with about hypnosis. I've heard of this doctor who called a daughter and son, or a daughter and father, on stage, and he had like a watch, and the hypno- hypnotist hypnotized the father. To think that the daughter was invisible and then yeah. he held the watch up to her back and the guy read the timer read an inscription on the back of it as if she wasn't even there that is yeah, fascinating to me I've, how you now, I've, somebody?
1: yeah i don't think i've ever had that but i, I did once just just as an aside i, I hypnotized the woman uh i was fitting in an intrauterine device for contraceptive purposes and i used to use hypnosis a lot just to relax her and when i finished she said well, that was interesting would you mind Regressing me to form, you know, see if I could see a form of life. So while she was there with my nurse, I said, "Okay, let's do it." So I put her back into a trance. Um, it, it scared the bejesus out of me because suddenly her left arm and her left leg curled up, and she looked really old. And um, I thought she had a stroke. When I tested her reflexes, she became hyperreflexic with an upgoing plantar response, which is exactly what you get with the stroke. Wow! Um, and, and there's no, I mean. You couldn't fake that. I mean, I mean, you you just you didn't know what I just said, but then any doctor would know that means there's a stroke on that side. She certainly didn't know that, and that was you know that was generous. And I actually thought she had a stroke, so I quickly brought her back, and she was completely normal. And that really freaked me out because, as far as I was concerned, she looked like she'd adopted the position and uh, you know the, the 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 body mannerisms and the reflexes of, of an elderly person who'd had a stroke. And after that, I thought well, I'm not going to do that again. So that. Um, that was interesting but that that was after eventually obviously i went to medical school and um became a doctor but but what, what happened the school going back to school was i had all these kids being hypnotized and of course the school authorities got a bit worried about it and uh, the deputy principal called me into her office and she was very nice she said look ian i do believe in hypnosis i've got a degree in psychology and i think it's real but you, sh- you can't do it at school and by the way sign this disclaimer I mean, she was covering her ass with paperwork and that was in the mid sixties. That was very forward thinking. I mean, we're doing everyone's doing that now.
0: Yeah, she was PC um, before PC was a thing. She,
1: she, yeah, she was ahead of the head of the game then. Yeah. Um, but um, she said, look, when you go to medical school, so she'd obviously pick uh, had, had had in mind that I was going to go to medical school. She said, when you go to medical school, they'll teach you this. But because they don't. They don't, they don't teach you this at all. Yeah. It wasn't until I was uh Studying as a t- to be a, a GP. So in the UK, you have to go on what's called a training scheme. So you're a qualified doctor. You've done your internship, and then you're doing your residence posts. Um, and you do like a I did a four year scheme where you go through various different specialties: um, OBGYN, paediatrics, psychiatry, geriatrics, general uh, internal medicine, and then you spend a year in general practice as a qualified doctor, but learning as an apprentice, sort of learning. The rules and when i was doing obgyn um we had a woman who had a hysterectomy and she had a catheter in and we couldn't get the catheter out. every time we took the catheter out um she couldn't uh, she went to what urinary retention she couldn't empty her bladder and she was in hospital for a week and the specialist i was working with she was getting very frustrated and i said to her look perhaps i could try and hypnotize her and um she said we'll give it a go and i did and it was fine and the specialist was so impressed that um she started sending me private patients so uh, after i done my i did my obgy and i then moved into general practice for a year and i was a general practice trainee and i was the only general practice trainee who had a private hypnosis practice um which was actually strictly against the rules in fact the guy who trained me in general practice he's just he's just uh, he's become a good friend of mine and i told him just a couple of weeks ago what i was doing and he said you you never told me that he said you are know, slated you've ever had known that in, the, in those days I said, yeah that's why i never told you so but it, it was and i, I use hypnosis when i moved into my practice I, I joined my current practice in 1984 and i had a thriving hypnosis practice then and, and it's very powerful and i'd recommend it the only problem is the way it works in the uk you literally have 10 minutes per patient in a clinic so a morning clinic would be like 18 patients seen at 10 10 minute intervals Uh, And you just don't have the time for it. So at the same time I was learning, uh, I was uh, uh, training to be a GP. One of the guys in the practice when I was training, he got into acupuncture. and He taught me some acupuncture. So I incorporated that into my practice as well. And I've kept that going because with acupuncture, it's pretty time efficient. You can see two, three, four patients, put needles in, put them in a room, see somebody else, uh, leave the needles in for half an hour. And and I get good results with that as well. But that's not, it's not traditional Chinese acupuncture. That's what I call barefoot acupuncture. It's a few uh, conditions like migraine, back pain, arthritis. Um, there's certain standard points you use. And there's plenty of that in uh, medical practice to keep you going for ages. Uh, by the way, I mean, this is something I offer in addition to my, my patients. We don't actually get paid for this. So The way it works in the UK is you're, basically you're given a salary um so a, a, a part of what you do is based on on how many vaccinations you give or how many smears you do but on the whole you're given a salary so you're pretty much given free reign. you don't have to worry about the money we don't charge our patients there's no money exchanges hands the patients don't have to sign up with an insurance company so they come and see the doctor and we do what we think's needed and if they you want to do a bit of extra that's up to me doesn't cost the patient anything so there's there's no, literally no money uh, changing hands here, and the way it works in the UK. Because I know a lot of a lot of you um, in the in the US don't really understand how it works. Um, so that, or so when you want to see a doctor, you will go and see your registered doctor. So everybody's registered with a practice. You don't see a specialist direct, um, but and most of the case, the general practitioner, or uh, which is what I am, which you known as primary care physician, would deal with pretty much everything. But but if there's stuff that requires specialist input. Then you will refer them to what we call a consultant or a, you know as a specialist that's a you know person who's trained who's a specialist in the field but a lot of the stuff we we handle on our own here i i, I worked at the london school of economics for a year in 90, in 1983 about a third of my patients were americans and i used to, and they used to come in and say hi doc i want to see a dermatologist and i get really upset because in the UK, you just don't do that because that's <laughs> insulting to the doctor. You know, they, I mean, you know, I can't handle it. I had to realize that actually in the US, the US you know, you, you're, you're, you're so used to managing your own healthcare. you know what you want. Yeah. And so you'll yeah. see the gynecologist. And I, I understand that obviously now, but it took me a while to come. There's a totally different culture. Um, so yeah. But the, the nice thing is being a doctor in the UK is money doesn't come into it. We get paid our salary and we just do what we have to um, also uh, uh, pretty much that most of the medicines are that the patients either get the get get it free or pay a small a very small charge a few dollars in 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 american uh, terms for for their medication and for instance if you're diabetic you don't pay anything so you don't have to worry about paying for insulin and stuff like that
0: i think that should be the way that it is i mean especially and you know we do the argument about what's going on right now with the the thing they're calling a vaccine, which I disagree with uh, that it is a vaccine, but yeah. the thing that they're calling that it's completely free and they're incentivizing people to do it with donuts and scratch off lottery tickets and beer. And they're incentivizing all these crap that is not good for your health to get something yeah. that they're claiming is good for your health that I also disagree with. But I I will say what's interesting is the, to the point to that is, is that chemo an arm and a leg just to survive same thing with insulin with diabetes over here but the sh- this thing that they're <laughs> calling a vaccine is not and so it's interesting how they frame it under the guise of uh, public health and that they're out for your best good but it just doesn't like the actions don't don't match up right
1: well it's a very different health culture and in the UK it's all NHS and people just expect the NHS to to, to perform and do it. Um it's uh, uh yeah, it's a great, it's a great shame really. I mean, I don't want to criticize another country, but bearing in mind that you're the wealthiest country in the world. Um, you'd have thought a little bit of your GDP uh into sort of universal healthcare would help. But I know it, it evokes there's a very different culture between the UK and the US. And I appreciate there's a there's a much more culture of individuality and it's very important for America. So I, I can't, you know, I, I it's very difficult growing up in the UK, uh, to, to, to understand that so but i mean it's just the way things are over here. so basically i i'm responsible for the health of 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 my patients and i try and do my damnedest to help uh, although you know like every system you're often fighting the system i mean you know uh there's bureaucracy it was just like in the american insurance system you've still got the bureaucrats who get in the way all this stuff it's the same you know the same old, old things so so that that's how it works over here um and I, like i said I've been in my practice since 1984 and uh yeah uh so and it's, it's it's serious stuff so you can imagine um how my how lucky i am to be in a, a practice where when i started going psychic so to speak and uh, be, being to think i was uh, possibly in contact with people speaking to the dead that my, my that my partners you know were very very understanding um because the culture in our practice is that basically um, we try and encourage our, uh, each one of us to expand our, our skills in, in whatever way we, f- we feel we can offer our patients. But I have to say it's unusual, really unusual.
0: Well, it's unusual currently maybe it's not Uh, you know in the future maybe this is the direction that we're going is the marrying of the eastern and western medicines and i do want to get into that uh here in a little bit so set us up on how you figured out you know through your medical training and and going down that road how you figured out that you had some gifts that uh other folks aren't really possessing in your mind well well i didn't
1: until i didn't i mean i didn't figure it out it came i mean i must be i must be thick or something stupid because um it took a, it took a great deal so um so let let's fast forward to 2003 it happened to me in 2003 and i guess you say that's when i had my kundalini experience um but it was preceded by um a classic sort of situation of deconstruction um so uh i need to tell you about my family so uh, my father was an only child so so his family doesn't really come into it but My mother was one of five, she came from a large Jewish East End family. So um, her father came from Poland at the turn of the 20th century. And he was a a baker. And he had a couple of shops in the East End. He had five children, uh, three girls, one of whom was my mother and two brothers, uh, and two boys. And um, he would have done very well. He had a couple of shops, but he was very fond of horse racing at the end of the week he'd uh, put his hand in the till and blow all the takings on the horses. And I, and I think this is what was the root of the problems in my family because I realised when I was the age of 47 that I was having problems relating to my parents and it took me a while to make the break. I was a good Jewish boy, you know, I, I went to medical school, I tried to, to look after my mum and dad, but I wasn't quite doing everything that my mum wanted me to do. And bearing in mind I had family commitments, I then had a, a wife and two kids. This started to cause tension. I mean, basically, she wanted all my attention. I, I couldn't do it. Um, and it became a very toxic situation. In fact, looking back, my family was really quite inward looking. Um, and I realized that my cousins had all had similar problems with their parents. Um, and things blew up in 2001 where I had a flaming row with my sister and my, and my mom and dad. And I was basically expelled from the family um and i really didn't see them for a few years maybe maybe three years um had to to break away from them and um i was really very miserable about this i was 47 you know really busy busy practice doing on-call um working all the hours two young children my wife was a doctor as well she's also working so we were a busy family and i was literally on my knees and i and i, I was a terrible state. I mean, to the point where my wife was reading books out loud, passages from books on toxic families to me, so I could understand what I was going through. And so there I was uh, at the end of a busy morning clinic in my health center. And the last patient of that morning was a guy called Keith Bishop. Now, I'd known Keith for about 19 years by then. Uh, he, was, he is, is uh, a public relations guy. And uh, he used to work at BBC television centre. He was the, um, he assisted the director general of the BBC. So that's quite a senior position. But he came from a a working class family like me. In fact, he was born, his family lived in the area where my practice was. And um, he'd always felt like a fish out of water, that he was sort of in the wrong place. Pretty much like I did, because I always felt that in the medical field, that I shouldn't really be there because I didn't come from that sort of background. No one... No one in my family had even gone to university at that stage, or um, and that's not true. I mean, my cousins have gone to university, but but my my antecedents hadn't gone to university, and none of them had been doctors. I mean, they were basically uh, uh you know, from Russia, uh, Eastern European uh, Jewish immigrants, uh, fleeing the ethnic cleansing in, in, in Eastern Europe in those days. Um, so, um, so we were kindred spirits in that way, and, and um, whilst he was setting himself up in his um PR company and going through all that i, I used to spend some time of an evening if i was on call i'd see him in my in my office and we'd go to, you know, you'd talk about his life well you know counseling sort of thing really he didn't know a lot about me but i knew a lot about him um so we had quite a good relationship so this was the fourth of july 2003 my, my personal independence day when it all kicked off so uh, so keith was the last patient of my morning clinic and um he he tends to be a bit late. He's a bit unreliable, is Keith, really. He's a lovely, lovely man, and I owe him a lot. But he works in a field where it's all a bit lovey-dovey, and they say one thing and maybe it doesn't happen. Um, I mean, he works in the showbiz field. But he's very entertaining, and he always tells me some in- interesting stories about showbiz when he comes. So he hadn't turned up, and I thought, well, he's not going to turn up. I'll, I'll go out. I had some house calls to do. I'd like to go to the gym and go for a swim uh, in, You know, in, in the afternoon. Trying to get up out of my chair, but I felt something pushed me back down. Tried again, something pushed me back down. And as as I sat down the second time, my phone rang, and it was my receptionist, Carol, and she said, "Mr. Bishop's PA's been on the phone. He's at the local station. Um, he's sorry he's late, but he'll be there in five minutes. Can you hang on?" So says, "Yeah, yeah, I'll hang on, but I'm not going to hang around all day." So he came into my room. He was red-faced. He was panting. Yeah, he was out of breath. He'd run he'd run from this from the station and of course i had to take his blood pressure so i had to give him time to, to to calm down so he sat down in my chair and i thought he was just going to tell me a few stories he started off telling me some stories he looks after a few famous people and i thought you know he started telling me some stories then he looked at me quizzically and said hey doc i've got this man here um he says he's your grandfather the one you never met and he wants to tell you something and i thought the first thing i thought was That's interesting because I've been thinking about my grandfather because he was the grandfather I'd ever met, my mother's mother's father. Um, And I traced him to the root of the problems I had in my family because I think his gambling behaviour caused all the insecurities that that blew up in my face. Um, And my second thought was, Keith has gone mad and I'm going to have to sort of get um, get the boys in white coats round to get him admitted to a psychiatric hospital. But I mean, I said to him, well, are you telling me you hear spirits? He said, "Yeah, I always have done." I said, "How come you never told me before? I've known you for years." He said, "Well, it's not the sort of thing you normally tell your doctor, is it?" He'd think you're mad. I'm thinking, "Well, that's that's true." I think you're mad. <laughs> but I, he said, "Now listen." He said, "Give me the benefit of the doubt. Um, I'm going to listen to what your grandfather's going to tell me, and then I'll tell you what he says. If he says anything that you don't like, it's, it's him. It's not me." I thought, "Okay, I listen," and then next 20 minutes or so, he started to speak rapidly as if he was listening to someone over his shoulder. Um, he wasn't in a trance or anything, but he was lucky like, like he was listening and very rapidly told me everything that was happening in my life, which was uncanny because there was no way he could know that. And then at the end of it, um, he seemed to sort of snap into around. He sort of uh, looked less dazed and said, was that OK? And I said, that was amazing. <laughs> he said, um, then he said to me he said my he said william tells me that you should be doing this i said who's william he said oh he used to be my boss at the bbc that when he died he became my spirit guide and i'm thinking this is cuckoo you know you know he's he's got a screw loose he said you should be doing this i said doing what he said listening to spirit I this is spirit what does he mean spirit spirits i don't know what this term spirit means he said you're like a man on the edge of a cliff don't be afraid to take a leap of faith off the cliff they'll catch you um, and with that, he left my room. Um, he also said um, that, um, that, that I had a brother in spirit, which I denied. He said, yes, you do. Your mum had a miscarriage before you were born and your brother grew up in spirit. And I realized, I remember my mum did have a miscarriage before, before, she, uh, before I was born. But of course, I also know that about that, that 50% of women have miscarriages that so we now know. So it's not, that's a lucky guess. He said, well, look, he, he wants to, he'll come to you tonight around about 11 o'clock. So I want you to sort of meditate at that time and see what happens. So at 11 o'clock that night, um, I kissed my wife goodnight. She went to bed. I went upstairs in the, uh, the upstairs bedroom in our converted attic and lay there, waited for my departed fetal brother to come and absolutely nothing happened. And I thought, well, this is just bonkers. And that was it. Totally dismissed it. But then, then the shit hit the fan um so um yeah the more stuff happened do you want me to tell you what happened or? please
0: i i definitely want to unpack some of this stuff but please keep going yeah okay so yeah so the first thing that happened was
1: um i had this weird dream now i mean it's just a
0: dream you know weird
1: mm. dreams what a weird dream. but i was at my um again it's doing with my family i was at my aunt's house and she used to give these she was very well off she used to give lavish dinner parties and i was at sitting at a, a long white table, table covered with with um, a nice white tablecloth, sitting obviously my Carol, my, my cousin Carol, and for some reason in my dream I was she was trying to uh, she's a psychotherapist and she was trying to refer me a patient, um, and I was uh, to do a chest X ray on this patient. I remember saying I can't do a chest X ray, she's not my patient. Then I heard myself saying anyway I'm not, I'm not psychic and I can't see auras, and with that I heard a voice to my left, a Cockney voice, and at the head of the table was an Indian looking man, not not a Native American, but a a guy from India. But he was dressed wearing a flat cap like you see in the the Cockney uh, Barrow Boys wearing. And he had a Cockney accent. And above him was a a light on the wall with with like little crystal things, uh, like a crystal chandelier on it. Not a chandelier, like a a lampshade. And with that, he said, of course you can, boss. I said, I couldn't see or He said, of course you can, boss. And with that, he, he turned around and flicked a switch on the wall, and these amazing gem-like shafts of blue light came out. And he said, what do you do with all that blue? And in my dream, I heard myself saying, as if I'd known all along, but I'd temporarily forgotten, I give it to people. And I just woke up crying Wow! to the point where I, I woke my wife up and, and told her this dream. I said, I said, do you think I'm going mad? she said, well, you've always been a bit mad, but don't worry, I still love you. And she went back to sleep. But I knew that whatever was going to happen, she would be with me on my journey. But that, So that was just a dream. Um, but other stuff started happening. Um, what else happened? Oh, Did yeah. you start um, seeing auras after that dream? No, no, no. But no, no. I, I can't. I have had experience where I've seen auras, but no, no. Um, uh, I, I then ended up going to a... What happened the next time? Yeah, I ended up going to a, a, a party, uh, another family party, a few days later, where um, the first person I spoke to told me she'd grown up in a haunted house, and I just thought oh, this stuff's too much. I don't want to hear this stuff. It's just you know it was disturbing me. There'd been other stuff which I couldn't remember, but I'd been disturbed by these weird coincidences. So I remember saying to my, wife, well, I'm not speaking to this woman. You you take over. I'm going to go and get a drink. So I went into the kitchen to get a drink um And then there, there was another door leading to another garden. And as I walked out into this other garden, uh, and, and a long distant cousin from Michael Rose, her name was Rose, was sitting on a swing bench. And as I walked out into the garden, I overheard her saying, "I used to be a spiritual healer, but uh, when my kids were born, I had to give it up." And I, and I stopped, and I said, "Rose, I keep on bumping into all this stuff. What's happening? I never came across all this talk before." And she said, "Oh, that's simply. And she said, "They want to work with you." I said, "What do you mean they want to work with you?" She said, "Well," She explained that when when doctors and nurses die um, they go to the other side as she believed and that they often want to help uh to carry on working on the earth plane and therefore they'll pick someone and try and work with them if they're uh open to it and i just said well i don't know i'm not into all this stuff she said well um you know she said um if they want to work with you they'll find a way and i just found it a bit disturbing at the time uh and then um What else? I mean, other stuff happened. Um, I walked into my room one day and um, threw my keys on my desk. Uh, I went to do a a house call on a patient that was just around the corner. And as I left my room, I heard, I felt a blow to the back of my head and heard a voice. I literally heard a voice saying, pick up your car keys or they get stolen. And um, I didn't, I thought, I thought this was crazy. I, I, I walked to the patient's house, did the house school. When I came back, um, someone had taken the key from my desk and uh, got into my car. Now, what happened was is that uh, it was in the surgery, the doctor's car park, and there was a, 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 an apartment block uh, uh, opposite. And someone had seen um, a, a shifty looking youth uh, pressing the keys and uh, you know, trying to get into my car, seeing which indicator lights flashed. And she'd phoned the practice and they chased this youth away. But um, he'd run off with my car keys, got into my car, probably taken my prescription pad, maybe some drugs and my mobile phone. So I had to report this to the police, um, obviously. So I had to go, there's a police station across the road from from my practice. And when I went in there, um, uh, I had this weird incident with a a, a policeman. There, He wasn't a policeman. He was a civilian, uh, what do they call it? It's the Metropolitan Police in London. They have police officers, but they also have civilian staff there. And uh, he was dressed in the civilian staff uniform. And uh, I had to report this, this crime. And um, he, he asked me my date of birth, and I told him what it was. And he said, oh, you're a Leo like me. And I said, oh, are you into all this new, new age shit? Then? <laughs> I said. He said, yeah, I, I'm a psychiatric nurse at the local hospital. I'm doing a degree in spirituality. I'm just doing this job to to earn a bit of extra cash. So I said, well, you'll be interested. I I knew, I I heard a voice telling me my car key was going to get, we're going to get stolen. So with that, he said, well, we were meant to meet. He slapped his hand on the desk and said, I'll give you a reading. And with that, he he drew out a pack of cards from his desk. um, And they were Native American medicine cards, which I'd never seen before. He said, said, I said, what are those? He said, well, choose a card, each card's got a meaning, and I'll give you a reading. And I thought, well, this is crazy. I'm in the twilight zone here. You know, I'm in the police station trying to report a crime. I'm getting a reading, um, and I mean, the, the reading was. I picked a card. He looked at it, looked it up, and I. The, the, he said the question in my head was: I actually, at the time, I'd been writing a piece of software uh, for nine years. It was going to make my fortune. I was going to be the next Bill Gates. It didn't work.
0: But, That's um, good. We don't want. We don't need another Bill Gates.
1: <laughs> no, no. It was to do on call rushes for doctors. It was a good piece of software, but anyway. And I, I asked the question I asked in my head was, would this be successful? And the answer he gave me was the world was not yet ready. And I thought, okay, thank you very much. Just give me my crime reference number so I can tell my insurance company to change all the locks on my car. And as I walked out of the state, out of this police station, I had a weird feeling that were I to turn round, he wasn't going to be there, you know. And I went back to the surgery and told my receptions, all the girls I worked with and the, my colleagues there. And they started whistling the twilight yeah theme. oh yeah, Zone yeah. Theme, you know so i thought i'd cross into this weird 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 world of odd coincidences um yeah eventually um it was my wife who helped me so um and this is where i need to go back in time so let's go back in time so uh i had a really really strange thing happen to me when i was 19 that i sort of put to one side so um I was at uh, the University of Nottingham, where I trained to be a doctor. And uh, my best school friend, Nick, um, had gone to the University of Leicester. So Leicester and Nottingham are very close, about 30 miles separate. And I used to hang out with Nick a lot. I used to work really hard um, when I was at Nottingham. And then I used to go and party with Nick because Nick was doing physics. And his degree was much less onerous than mine. He actually used to run a discotheque. So um, he had lots of friends, and they had some pretty wild parties. I got to know all his friends. So it was the first summer, summer 1974, first long vacation, and we'd all ended up back in London, back in our houses. And I was at Nick's house with my sister, um, and his girlfriend Felicity was staying over for the summer vacation. Now the background to that is that my sister had a big crush on Nick, and. uh, nick's girlfriend felicity had a big crush on me so it was all very intense and i just started going out with my girlfriend who subsequently became my wife so it's all very adolescent all very very intense um but to our credit we we never took drugs we never smoked anything we were, we were clean i mean you know we weren't into that sort of thing in those days so we were just drinking coffee and hanging out and um uh, just talking and laughing and joking and i was sitting opposite Felicity, and Nick was sitting next to her. My sister was sitting, so she saw our profiles. And um, I was obviously enjoying the attention I was getting from Felicity, no doubt about it. And she was quite an attractive-looking girl, but darkly-complected, dark hair, long dark hair down to her waist, brown eyes. Um, she didn't have her bangs. Her hair was part in the centre. Um, and all of a sudden, as I was speaking, there was this blonde-haired Snow Queen looking at me with, with bangs, um, shoulder length uh, blonde hair very high cheekbones and piercing blue eyes that looked right into me and the most interesting thing was that her lips didn't seem to be properly formed they were distorted very thick as if they were covered with frosted white lipstick and these piercing blue eyes looked right into my soul and i got this these messages sort of dumped into my head now you call it a download but we didn't have that term in 1974 that's a modern term, isn't it? Um, and there were the four messages, stop, what you're doing is wrong. I knew what that meant. You know, I was sort of playing on her emotions. And then mark this, know there's more to life than meets the eye, and one day you will understand. And that was, and that just, it, that literally blew me away. I mean, if you've ever seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when the flying saucer lands, and the, and, 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 and the ramp comes in, this white light comes out, it was like that, that feeling of, whoa, but, but no white light. But it was like, Wow, I've been hit by something. And that precise instant, my sister, who was age 15 at the time, started screaming at the top of her voice, my God, can you see those lips? Because she'd seen the profile and she'd seen these really distorted lips that, Fel- uh, that Felicity's face was now sporting, I suppose you say. And I turned around to my sis- sister and said, well, you've seen it too. And um, looked back and she was, Felicity was completely normal. Now, Nick and Felicity didn't, weren't aware of anything happening to them, but they just saw our reaction. So, I mean, by this time, tears were streaming down my face. I mean, I, I was upset, but not, not, not frightened. I was just, I was not backed by the emotion. Um, my sister was hysterically frightened to the point where she still doesn't like to talk about it. Um, so we ran around like headless chickens, got into my, my, had my dad's car, and um, we, we piled into my dad's car went around to my parents and sort of uh, woke them up at 2 a.m. but they weren't best pleased. Next day, I phoned all my friends around and my friend Steve said, well, I don't know what, it, what this is, but my next door neighbor is a medium. Why don't you come and tell him what it was? So I went to Steve's house the next day and explained what happened. And this, this tall, gangling man, he was about 27. He, we were all 19, prematurely boarding, strange man called Keith Hudson. And he showed me his, his book which was a phenomenon of spiritualism i think it was called he said what you saw was a spirit guide protecting her from 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 my emotional i was probably feeding off her energies you know enjoying the attention um and I, and i thought well i don't buy spirit guides keith you know i can it's not very scientific is it um it must have been a hallucination but that means telepathy is real which puts me in a bind because there's nothing in my science books that says telepathy is real either but telepathy felt better than spirit guides for some reason. Um, it sounded more, more scientific, you know, thought well, it's transfer. Almost like
0: it, it almost refers to a science we haven't figured out yet rather than something woo-woo that cannot be explained by conventional means. It's a closer step, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: And I carry that with me all my life because what, what, do, you, you, what do you do with that? You, so you park it somewhere. You can't factor it into your, your, your life. You just hive it away. And occasionally I tell people, I tell people at parties, and occasionally I tell my patients. So I remember once I had a guy who was dying, and he said, Doc, what do, do, do you think there's anything afterwards? And I, I didn't know. I said, Look, I don't know, but this is the experience I had. And I know a guy who said that was a spirit guide, which would imply there is life after death. And when he died, his wife came to see me and said, That story you told, his name was Len, that story you told, Len. He found very helpful because he said that if if an intelligent educated man like my doctor had that experience then that that gave him some hope um so that that was that was useful but i mean that was as far as it went i mean i had no other interest in it i mean um i mean i yes i mean i suppose that that's as far as it went. another story which i ought to tell you about which might put more light on it is um i actually have had a near-death experience and that was when I was age of nine. And that's probably now, now knowing that, knowing that with hindsight, I now think that's probably quite important. So um, in, in, when I was a kid, the doctors took your tonsils out at the drop of a hat. They don't like to do that now. But, um, and I scuppered myself really, because um, like I said, my, there, there was some, there was some abnormal illness behavior in my family, like pre, pre, pretty, 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 pretty quickly figured out that if I had a sore throat, I got off school. My mum tucked me up in bed. She made me tomato soup and a buttered roll, which seemed a lot better than going to school. So I used to pretend I had sore throats. And eventually it reached a point where I had so many sore throats. She told me to see the doctor. And, he said, and the doctor said, you've got to have your tonsils out, mate. So uh, so, that was it. Uh, so, so there yeah. we are. So, that, so I, Anyway, so um, I ended up having my tonsils removed. Um, so... Uh, and that was, that was a pretty minor operation. But I, so I was age nine. I was in hospital. I had my tonsil removed. But I started um, bleeding from the, the operation. When they take tonsil, they literally cut them out. out and they cauterized the, the, the it was called the tonsil bed. But um, it didn't take with me. And I, I was swallowing a lot of blood and vomiting up blood. And I remember being really ill and vomiting up a lot of blood. And so I lost a lot of blood. Not, I wasn't ill enough to the point where I needed a blood transfusion. So I couldn't have been that ill. But I was quite ill. And I had to have a, another operation where they culturized it a bit, a bit more. Again, not a big operation. But anyway, it took a while to get hold of mum and dad to come and sign the consent form for the operation. So it took a while. So I remember being anesthetized. And then I remember finding myself in a tunnel. So, but I was at one end of the tunnel. And in this dream I had, which I thought was a dream under the anesthetic, I felt that there was this. Lot, big stalk, like a big umbilical cord, but much thicker, being unwound from the centre of my abdomen, like taffy or molten glass, and it was sort of gently twisting round and going down this dark tunnel. I don't know. Um, uh, gardeners have these black poly tunnels; we call them in the UK. They're like hoops with wire hoops in, which you can grow um, grow uh, plants in. It's like being in one of those, a big one, but black. Um, and at the end of this stalk, which is being extruded from me, was a little light. And I knew, I knew that I, although my body was here, I actually was that little light, little spark. Yeah. And I remember it was going around the tunnel, the tunnel curved to the left, then I lost consciousness. Now, I'd always had that. And in fact, I used to tell that story a lot about the day I almost died. Um, and I stopped telling it when I had more stories to tell. And, and I've actually forgot about it. I didn't even put it in my book because I didn't know the significance of it. Um, but of course, we now know that people have near-death experiences, and, and, and you don't have to be at near-death to have a near-death experience. But you know, there was a the tunnel. There was the light. Okay, I mean, I was the little light on the end of this stalk, But it was definitely what you call had some of the elements of a near-death experience. And I was in physical distress as a result. I don't think I was going to die. But nonetheless, I think you would call that a near-death type experience. And we now know that people who have these often do come back, and often then go on to have psychic experiences or other transformative experiences. So maybe it was that. And, and an interesting uh, point echo from that is that that took place in the hospital where I subsequently did my um, did my specialty training. You know, so I mentioned where I did my OBGYN and, and all that stuff. So when I was doing OB-GYN, um uh, when you were doing emergencies you'd have to um, sometimes do a what's called a dnc where you 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 scrape the the womb of a woman who's um, maybe she's got some bleeding thing just to stop her bleeding that'd be done under a general anesthetic it's quite a simple thing to do even me as a as a junior resident could do that when i was on call i wouldn't have to get my my, my boss in so um one evening a woman came in she'd had a baby she was still bleeding she needed a dnc i phoned the operating uh, theater book theater Book the anaesthetist and as i phoned the theater the theater staff said well um the theater the normal theaters um being decorated is a different theater um I'll, I'll show you the way someone came to get me to show me the way and as i walked into this operating theater i just i said i've been here before i just knew and it was like 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 i've been hit over the head with something was that a house and i said i've been here before and the woman who took me in, she said, "You couldn't, can't have been. This has been mothballed for ten years. It's the old pediatric ENT theatre, and that would have been the theatre where I had my near-death experience." Now, that's interesting in itself because all operating theatres look the same. I was nine when it happened, and also you get anesthetized in an anteroom, not the operating theatre. So, how did I know it was that one? So that's again something indicative that there's something odd going on here in my life. And it's only with hindsight; it's only when you see the pattern over many years begin to piece it together um so yeah so uh i think that's probably where it all came from so 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 that i've told you the story now of how i met keith hudson who's the guy who told me about um felicity's face so fast forward to 2003 when i'm going through all this this time looking around my, remember my wife's heard the story of felicity's face ad nauseam i mean she's sick of it um and, and she said you you've told it to everybody there can't be anybody <laughs> but you haven't told it to of course after this i'm now telling it to the entire world she's given up now she just said you're obviously meant to tell this story this but is a to the time, audience
0: man you just told yeah, exactly people. Yeah. she said
1: i never thought she obviously meant to tell this story um which <laughs> but, she, but my, now my, my wife um thank god i mean she's indian Um, And she's a lot more open to these things than I was from my background. Um, She's not particularly religious, but she's Hindu. And in her religion, um, they're very open to these spiritual experiences. So she's been really, really, really supportive of me. Um, And um, she was looking in the local paper and she saw a small uh, advertisement in the local paper for the local spiritualist church, the Beacon of Light Spiritualist Church in the borough where I live. And she said, um, and it mentioned that a guy called Keith Hudson was giving a demonstration of clairvoyance. They said, is that Keith Hudson, the guy with his face? I said, yeah. Um, she said, well, we've got to go and we've got to go and see him and, you know, see if he'll give you a message. I said, I'm not going. She, she said, well, we must go. And the reason why she said we've got to go is because the day before that, I'd been telling one of my patients about all these weird coincidences that have been happening to me. And one of my patients is a guy called Dave Godfrey. Dave's wife Rhoda worked with my wife, uh, so my wife's a doctor. Rhoda was a health visitor, and uh, I, Dave had a science degree, but he was actually a spiritual healer. He'd given up being a science teacher was a spiritual healer. Very sensible guy. And I told Dave what's happened to me. He said, "Ian, you need to join a circle." I said, well, "What are they?" He said, "Well, they're based at spiritualist churches, and that um, uh, is where they train mediums." I said, "Well, look." I, I'm, I'm a non-religious Jew. My wife's Hindu. People like us don't go to churches. And he said, the spirit wants to work with you. They'll find a way. And the next day, my wife, Poonam, noticed this small ad. And she remembered what, what Dave, who she knew, because she worked with Rhoda, his wife, and said, that's why we've got to go. So this thing, she said, maybe the spirit world is giving you, wants to give you a message. So that's why we ended up, we ended up there. The very first time I met Keith Hudson when I was 18, he looked at me and said, "Ian, you've got a lot of knowledge around. You don't know unite, but you will one day." And I thought, "Well, he would say that." I was, you know, I was going to medical school. That's an easy, that's an easy win. So I didn't take much credence. Fast forward 2003. I'm sitting at the back, trying to hide myself away at the back of this congregation, and it's Keith Hudson's there, and he looks the same. I mean, I've lost all my hair. I used to have a beard, had dark hair. I looked completely different. Keith looked the same. He, he'd already lost most of his hair, his hair by the time he was 27. And it was obviously the same man. And he gave everybody a message, fair clip, about 30 people in the, in the congregation. He gave everyone a, a brief message, and he came to me. I sort of tried to make myself look small. He said, sir, he obviously didn't know who I was. He said, you have a lot of knowledge around you. You don't know you know it. But they're telling me you will very soon and you're going to be writing a book about it. And of course, I thought he was I thought, well, he must say that to everyone, because that's what he told me when I was 18. Actually, he, that, that wasn't, you know, um, he doesn't say it to everyone because I subsequently started training with him. Um, and um, you now he's saying I was going to write a book about it. And He gave me basically the same message he gave me years ago. So at the end of the service, the president of the church said, Mr. Hudson hasn't got a car. Can anyone give me a lift back to Wardenstone where he lives? It's not far from where I live. So I, I put my hand up and said, yeah, but only if he comes back to my house and has a cup of tea first. As I, as I raced up towards him, he took a step back because you get, as he said, you get a lot of strange people at spiritualist uh, uh, congregations. Imagine, yeah. And I can come on a bit strong sometimes. So when I, you see, when I saw he looked a bit horrified, I said, um, I said, Keith, it's Ian Rubenstein, the doctor. Um, remember me? He said, Yeah, I remember you. Ian. he said, I was just talking about you the other day to to Ralph, another mutual friend. So he came back with me, um, sat in my kitchen having a, a smoke, and I realised that a lot of the mediums smoke really heavily. Back door was open. We 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 caught up after thirty years of mutual friends, and um, I took him back to his, uh, dropped him off in the Moreland and He said, Look, Ian, why don't you? Um, uh sit in my circle so you don't have to be a spiritualist He um, said, so i don't call myself a spiritualist i call myself a seeker after truth um and just see what happens so that's how i ended up uh for a laugh really sitting in a circle with a bunch of uh east enders really uh from london sort of the earth mainly working class people pretty much the people i grew up with um very different having a very different experience from what i normally do Working as a doctor with a bunch of doctors, and that's that's the brief story.
0: It's fascinating, man. You, you've had just such an incredible journey just along this path of walking between two worlds, and this is something I do want to get into. I'm gonna I'm gonna wind back some things that I've been thinking about and um, noting here as you've been talking about it. So we'll do them in reverse order from most recent to. So something that's interesting about uh, what you guys are talking about about UK doctors seeking other forms of practice and. Over here in the States, man, uh, doctors make quite a bit of money. Now, you come out of medical school with about $300,000 in debt, and that's a whole separate uh, challenge that we work with over here institutionally. But they don't leave their medical practice making however much they make a year to go into mediumship or spirituality, no matter how advantageous that feels for them. The money is it's generally, of course, we're generalizing. But over in the UK, it may be possible, just something that you've been talking about, just about the medical industry over there and how you've got a fixed salary, really no additional things or no riches you know, to be made over there because of the way it's set up. And it seems like then UK doctors in this example, seem to be called more to do something additional to their medical practice, if not leave it all together to go do something else. Now, do you think that that's a calling or do you think that it's because they have the opportunity to perhaps financially gain for it, doing something? Well, it's a generational different.
1: thing. My, my generation, I, I'm a baby boomer and I went to university, on a, I came from a working class family. I had a full grant. Education was free. I had a grant to sustain me at university. Um, in my, I was, my generation with uh, flower power, hippy-dippy, money was nothing. You know, it, it was dirty. And, and my generation of doctors in the UK, it didn't come into it. Money didn't come into it. You work for the NHS, you work for the good of the patient. It was very much a calling, actually. Yeah. What's happened now is, is uh, now, now my, my, my son's doctor is in his 30s. Um, that generation, a lot of them had the same problems. They've been burdened with debt. They've come out with a lot. They have student loans, they got a lot of debt. They become more money orientated. Yeah, um, I've never been particularly money orientated. I mean, you do. I mean, I mean, I'm not. I'm not. It pays well, but it's not the sort of super salaries you hear in the United States. No way. It just doesn't work like that because it's a nationalised industry, basically. Right. You know, it's it's a government service. Now, you can you can have a private practice. I mean, I mean, you know, there is a. a, a, a I, I mean, I, I had my private hypnosis practice, which I never made any money from because you used to give the money to my practice because I was. Uh, I I was a new junior partner and everything I earned was for the good of practice. But um, if you're a specialist, say a cardiologist, you would have your NHS practice and then on the side, you can earn quite a a lot of money. So, but not, not as a primary care physician. I mean, there's nothing in it. I mean, basically it's a free service. I mean, you can't compete against free service and that's not what you go in for. So, so the ethos, the ethos is different, but the ethos of my generation is very different. So, because the pressures are different.
0: This is a good um, point, the generation versus, I mean, even like you said, what your son's experiencing now. And, you know, it's interesting because there aren't a lot of doctors here, even if they have power, again, we're generalizing, that leave their practice to come in their minds, take a step down or a pay cut uh, if it—if it, if they are money motivated. There are some doctors who get discredited and disbarred for doing things that are way more acceptable where you're located, because if somebody tried to hypnotize somebody in a medical office, you know, they'd lose their license. It's not a recognized science. It's pseudoscience. And this is something I do want to touch on with you, because I'm very interested in it. So um, it, let me ask you about Felicity's uh, face real quick before we yeah, move yeah. on to the next one. So did she shift into a completely different person, or was there a second face overlaid on hers? That's
1: a really good question, Brandon. I don't know, because it's, imagine you're looking at someone, all of a sudden there's somebody else there, and it only lasts a few seconds. The interesting thing is, subsequent. So Keith Hudson um, loves old books. He's mad about books. He's got this largest collection of old spiritualist books, going way back to Victorian days. And and, I, and, I, and of course, I got really into that. I started reading a lot of them. He gave me a lot of books to read. And one thing I I realised was that the old spiritualists talk about the ectoplasmic buildup. Yes. So they saw a lot of this physical stuff, which we don't see so much now. But they would say that the it would the, the, the ectopasm will build up from the ground upwards
0: mm-hmm. and the
1: face would solidify from the top, the figure, and then the lower bit would take time to solidify. Now that was being mentioned in a couple of of, of, of books I read. I remember thinking, well, that that chimed with what I saw because the upper part of the face looked normal, the lower part was distorted. Yeah. So whatever was happening, it didn't have a chance to form, but I didn't see any like mist. Forming. It was instantaneous.
0: You're right. This is what's interesting about it. yeah And then also, yeah, the- was,
1: I mean, I, I mean I've, I've sat in transfiguration services and seen mediums say, and they say, oh, look a bit Chinesey, or oh, there's a bit of a Native American there. And I've never been convinced, but this was in your face. This was like this absolutely Nordic, you know, blue eye, looked straight into you. There was no doubt about it. I mean, you know, have seen that once? I mean, if 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 I if the CIA said, Ian, we're going to wipe your mind of all your experiences, all your weird stuff, what's the one you want to remember? That's the one I remember, because it is the most stunning. I haven't ever had... Uh, it's mostly because my sister witnessed it as well.
0: Right. No, it was corroborated. Uh, so it's
1: corroborated. We both yeah. saw the same thing.
0: Yeah. No, it's just interesting because... It it then lends to the idea of okay well well did she just do that because or did the spirit guide just change into that form so you could see it was it accidental was it something energetic it uh, seems no, to be I, no, I, no, okay like a response to the way you felt right I I well, I think well I mean it's, have you if you
1: ever heard you've heard of the Enfield Poltergeist, guys, haven't yes. you so um once my once he started getting known that i i was a doctor in Enfield, then my my practice covers that area it happened in so word got around the medical field that i was interested in this stuff and one of the doctors who's friendly with my wife she worked with him he looked after one of the guys who researched the Enfield poltergeist case in the 70s a guy called maurice gross and he said why don't you c- come around and i'll play you all the tapes and tell you what i saw at the Enfield poltergeist case uh, as you're interested in this i spent some time with him And when I told him what happened with this, his face, he said to me, he said, I think, and I didn't tell him I was training as a medium. He said, Ian, I think you and your sister are undeveloped mediums. And and he thought that the the, the energy was coming from me and from my sister. And that she was a physical manifestation. It was probably her spirit guide. He thought, but it was using our energy to manifest, but I've never done anything like that before. And I don't know, but that was his theory.
0: And this is one of the most interesting things about your story. It seems like a lot of people who can do things like this that aren't, it's its not considered necessarily um, extra. It's just normal to them, like super super normal or supernatural. They consider it natural. It's not a big deal. But what's interesting about your story in particular is how other people around that are tapped into this field have been telling you that you're tapped into this field and it took other people telling you. For you to realize it yourself. It wasn't the entities speaking to you as well. You and you and I have some similar things in common in this. Uh, number one, we're both drop dead, good looking. Uh, the other thing is, is that uh, we've both had very similar experiences at similar times. I run into this a lot. I speak to a lot of mediums and people who are not connected at all who tell me, hey, your spirit guide's here and wants me to tell you X. And I don't experience that, it that way. Um, I, I'm also not a medium. And nobody's ever said, you're you're basically just like a medium that doesn't know it yet. That's not the point. The point is, is other people have to tell me things that they can see that I can't, but that benefit me whenever it's uttered. So it's either a placebo effect, It's and, and maybe that's the way they operate, just in subtlety, which is acceptable. Another thing that was interesting is your 2001 family break. I went through the same thing. In two thousand one, we were different ages, but a couple years apart. But we—I went through the exact same thing, man. Um, so another thing that you'd mentioned that was fascinating to me is ghost doctors that then talk to you but encourage you to do more holistic or Eastern medicines rather than physical treatments that they. <laughs> well, I, I, haven't I haven't had that.
1: Well, I mean, I haven't heard them speak
0: to me. Okay.
1: Maybe maybe been encouraging me. I don't know. I haven't had that experience. I have had experience with spirit guides though. Some really weird stuff. The
0: the the, the thing about the doctor ghost thing is fascinating to me it's simply because what what you'd mentioned about it about other people telling you know being told hey you know maybe try this avenue instead and it's almost like these doctors who were doctors in their physical life then move on then gain a better understanding or a little bit of clarity and then institute that rather than the stuff that you are taught in medical school or anybody's taught in medical school. This is what's so interesting about you in particular is that you walk between worlds and i'm I'm curious to know how you adapt b- between <laughs> both practices because they seem oh, to be at odds with each other but have you found a way to marry them together
1: yeah I think I, I well it's difficult first of all you' got to understand is that I haven't given up my medical practice right um, I would never charge for mediumship or anything like that and I wouldn't do it i mean I, I like being a doctor i mean i i'm, I'm I've got to think about retiring. I mean, I've reduced my hours, but I'm actually still doing seven days a week. That's another, that's another question. I won't burden you with that. Um, the big problem, of course, was being struck off. I mean, you know, all of a sudden, you imagine you're you're working a busy practice, doing serious stuff. You know, you know, where you can get sued if you get it wrong. I mean, you know, um, and then one of the partners starts claiming that he's speaking to dead people. I mean, this is bonkers. Thank God, I had really understanding partners. Um, who are very, you know, who the culture of my practice is, you know, it's encouraging. You know, if this is interesting, if it's it's helping you, if it's helping people, then go with it.
0: But see, this type of idea doesn't happen over here. This is why doctors have to keep quiet about it or they get disbarred. Now, this is another interesting thing about you in particular, not necessarily... Everyone's experience or environment over there in your field, you in particular, with your uh, with the principal back then who was into psychology and could was fine with you doing hypnosis as a child. You got it, it's almost like this luck, you know, that you've yes. got around you constantly because yeah. you're yeah, encouraged yeah, yeah. Yeah, ab- to do this. Yeah. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I, 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 I sure. I mean, I don't know anything, but my working hypothesis is is, is that our lives have a pattern yeah um that i mean uh, for instance um uh how i ended up going to nottingham medical school i can tell you the story with that one um i was going to go to a different medical school uh i'd applied for two different medical schools and one of them wasn't nottingham and then i bumped into a, a, a an old friend from school um and he uh just one day i had been transferred I, I used to work at the public library system and um, I worked at a regular library and for one day I'd been transferred to another library when I was choosing the universities I wanted to apply for and I bumped into this old friend who was six years older than me he'd he'd been a prefect at school when I was 11 and I respected him and um, he was asked me what I was doing I said I was applying for medical school and he said have you looked at Nottingham I said yeah but I didn't fancy it he said oh no you should look again and he gave me a lift home and as he as I got out of the car I remember leaning across the passenger seat to me saying Ian, make sure you look at Nottingham, it's going to be a good medical school. And I did, and I changed my mind, and I ended up going there, ended up meeting my wife, um, and uh, about, that, that, that so that was in 1973 when I went to medical school, and I hadn't seen this guy since then. And then one day I'm in the local library, um, in now in the late 1990s, with my wife and two little boys in tow, and I, I realised that there was a guy there who looked like this guy, whose name was Leland Lewington the person who told me to go to medical school. And um, he had a, a younger wife and two little boys in tow, a bit like me. And I nudged my wife and said, I think that, that's Leland Lewington. She said, who's he? I said, he, he's the guy who told me to go to Nottingham. And that's how we met. Um, so it's thanks to him that we're here and our boys are here. So I'm going to go and thank him. So I went up to him and said, um, are you Leland Lewington? He, he, he looked a bit blank and took a step backwards. And he said, yes. And I said, um, he used to twist my ear and call me idiot child by the way I said you used to twist my ear at school and call me idiot child you told me to go to Nottingham um I went to Nottingham and here's my and I met my wife as well. here's my my children and now I'm a, a doctor locally thank you very much and he went white and said he said oh my god he said I remember that he said after I told you to go to medical school I decided I ought to do a medical degree as well I'm now a specialist cardiologist at Hammersmith Hospital and here, this is my wife, who happened to be a nurse who works at the same health minister, the same, the same health practice that my wife, who's also a doctor, worked at. And here are my two little boys, at which point the, um, the, the librarian who was listening to us said, can you two be quiet? I've never heard such a funny story in all my life. So there's this weird coincidence. And, and, and there's another, another part to this, which I will tell you now, because whilst I'm on the roll with library, so, you, so this guy, Lyndon, um, I worked so when I was at school, the, how I got friendly with Lyndon was because my school was very rough and we used to get beaten up in the playground. Um, uh, so I, uh, so one way of getting out, getting out of schoolyard fights was to sort of work in the um, in the library, stacking books, and I could do my home my homework. And Lyndon also did that, so that's where we got friendly, and that's where he used to twist my ear and call me idiot child. So that was the library. So I then met him in a library. he then told me to go to medical school in the library because i then worked at the library of a saturday job when i was 18. and then we met in a library and now i'm training as a medium okay and i've met my spirit guides i've fast forwarded a lot you haven't heard a lot sorry but so in spiritualism you met so i had this meditation experience and i was sitting under a bench looking at this and this guy appeared to me he said, I'm your spirit guide. I'm Nestor. So Nestor claimed in my head, this is a conversation in my head, that he was a Nestorian monk. He was the abbot of a Nestorian monas- uh, monastery. And that I actually, in a previous life, had been, um, he called me little brother. I was the administrator of the monastery. I'd been as a fussy little monk who liked everything to be prim and proper. And he explained to me that that's why I like office equipment, that's why I like computers. That was hangover from that life. Believe me, I mean, all my life, I've been fascinated by office equipment catalogs. Mm. I'd, like, you know, I'd get them and look through the like, staple machines. When I was a kid, I actually made, had a whole office. I had the headed notepaper, everything. I just made it up. It was, I, I, lo- I, loved, I still love that sort of thing. Who else looks at office equipment catalogs you know, and enjoys it? So he said, that's where you get it from. He, he said, in fact, that's why, that's why you chose to be reborn into this century. I mean, which i thought is a really crap
0: reason for being reborn i'm just here you know? for the office supplies guys I mean, i'm just yeah. here
1: for the office automation i mean it's bonkers <laughs> isn't it but maybe he's right anyway so so anyway so i, I i'm having this internal conversation and it's driving me nuts because up to this point i've been giving fairly simple messages within the group uh, of people i was trained with which i'll tell you about in a minute but the idea of interacting with internal voices that's a bit schizophrenic and you know, here I am. I'm a doctor. You know, I've got to get a handle on this. Is this stuff real? It's, how can it be real? So I'm, I'm, I'm in a library choosing some books. I also want to buy a pair of sunglasses. So I've got a uh, load of books in my hand. And suddenly I sense my guide. It could be me. I'm not sure. Saying, Ian, you're late for your meeting. This is a Saturday morning. I'm not working. I so I'm having this little conversation, the conversation in my head. Um, who are you? I'm Nestor, your guide. No, you're not. You're me. No, I'm messed up. I want to prove it to you. Ian, put the books down, go into the shop to get your sunglasses, and then go into the drugstore. Drugstore is called Boots. It's a uh, drugstore. So I thought, oh, or you'll be late for your meeting. And I'm thinking, I'll go along with this. This is crazy stuff. But I literally put the books down, walked out of the library, went into the shop called Millet's, got my sunglasses, and then I walked. Just across from there is Boots Drugstore. So I go into Boots Drugstore. As I go into the door, I thought, now what? And as I walk in through the door, there is Lyndon Lewington. No way. With his wife, Kay. Absolutely. And I look at him, and he looks at me. I said, Lyndon. And he says, Ian. I said, Lyndon, what are you doing here? He said, I uh, just filled out a prescription. What are you doing here? I said, well, I came here because my spirit guide told me I was going to meet you there. Well, not you, but actually I was going to have a meeting. And it turned out to be you. <laughs> and his wife, Kay, looked at Lyndon and said, Lyndon, you know, as if he's this guy, guy. I realized was looking like a complete stupid idiot. I said, "Nice to meet you, Linda. Nice to meet you, Kate." Spam around on my heel and went out.
0: <laughs> and so, I mean,
1: how the hell does that work? <laughs> library, library, library—the same guy.
0: <sighs> I
1: mean, I just don't follow it. I
0: mean, you mentioned co- the word coincidence, and I was not coincidence. Well, this yeah. is the thing, right? I, I, put up job, isn't it? Right, and this is it, right? It's not. It's synchronicities. Now, something that you're saying about spirit guides—I've I've got a lot to say on that. I, but I am. I am fascinated by the level of synchronicities that your life has embodied. Now, if you look back at it, everything having to do with the library, well, that's where knowledge is found. I mean, that's your, you're in a sense. Of, and what's interesting too is all of your correlations to higher consciousness or high strangeness have occurred in a place with books, with knowledge, where you're supposed to get this Western style, uh, you know, knowledge from, not this Eastern hippy dippy stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've never noticed that. It's a very good point, Brandon. It's interwoven, which is very interesting. And what again, you you have this life of if if anybody doesn't believe in soul contracts, just get have a conversation with you because you have the most laid out synchronistic. But again, and you're only about a year and a half older than me, but you've had a good amount of time to pay attention to these types of synchronicities. And you've got the eyes to see when something's significant in that way and not simply accidental or coincidental, which is what I find interesting and fascinating. So... I I have way too much stuff to talk to you about on this episode. I think that I am definitely going to have to have you back because we have some deep dives that you and I need to go into. Um, But just due to timing, there is one more thing that I want to talk about before we wrap it up. And then you and I are going to schedule another one of these because you are fascinating, man. Uh, So what do you think is the... ...idea between the marrying of the science and the philosophies, because you have been given a very left-brain education, but you've always tended towards the mysterious, rather than you are extremely dialed into it or not. It just seemed pretty ancillary to you, so again, it speaks back to that, the fact that it's not supernatural, it's just pretty natural, it's just something that happens. And that you're pretty dialed into it. So has what do you think that is? Do you think that that's the next step for medicine, like actual medicine is where we start getting a little bit more holistic?
1: Uh, well, this is where it gets a bit sad for me. I mean, I, when I trained in uh, general practice, um, the field was dominated by, uh, in the UK, a guy called Michael Ballant, who was a Hungarian psychotherapist, who took a holistic view and he looked at the psychological yeah. aspects of family practice. Really important. So the, so the way I say it is when you're a medical student, you get to make, learn how to make a physical diagnosis. When you qualify as a doctor, you begin to realize it's not just physical, there's the psychology, and that's very important.
0: Very important.
1: When you go into family practice or general practice or whatever you call it, primary care, you deal with family, you realize that the, you make a social diagnosis. Yeah social diet you've got to see the patient in context you've got to see their illness in the context of their society and what it means to them how they got it food they that all that sort of stuff and then i began to get into what i would now call a spiritual diagnosis now that's not by that i don't mean um uh i'm i'm using uh uh pendulums to diagnose and there's an energy thing I'm not. By that, I mean, I search for meaning.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But the next phase is, what does this mean to the person? What does it? So I spent a lot of time, time, even before I got into this, I was always asking my patients, what's the pattern of your life? What does this mean to you? How does this illness fit into your life? What have you learned from it? Um, But that's what I call a spiritual diagnosis. Um, But, of course, there's all the other stuff. The energy side stuff may or may not be real. I don't know. I mean, look, acupuncture works there's no doubt about it yeah a lot of it doesn't fit in with western style stuff um but maybe there is an energy a subtle energy or maybe what we call energy is actually information i think mean, physicists get very upset when you talk about energy but i tend to think that we live in an info an infoverse nice and it's about information um and we could talk about that i mean we had a brief discussion when we first met about the idea of your your user interface into reality yes um yes. so I, I mean i i don't think we've got the context but for, personally i did hope that when i ended up speaking to dead people because i do get messages we haven't talked about that but eventually i ended up getting putting in messages from seemingly deceased people i and, and using that as bereavement counseling and it's very very powerful um I did hope that that was something I could introduce more widely into medicine, but I'm afraid certainly the way at medicine is going is going very, very scientific and technical. I love science and tech. Don't get me I love science. I like the technical sides of it, but eventually that will be done by a robot or an AI. And this is the,
0: this is the point, right? Is because it does seem to be more automated and more technologically Mm, centric. mm, So mm. they're doing this for a number of reasons. Maybe it is to not truly diagnose. I mean, and like I said, you and I have a long conversation to have about medical industry. I think that this episode is wonderful because it's set up your backstory and it's set up where you are. And I am really looking forward to diving into these dark, this deep concepts with you the next time that we speak, because now we've laid that foundation. Yeah. So I, like I said, I have a ton of things that I want to talk to you about because you you've just, it, it's rolling around in my mind, your leaps of faith. I mean, everything about how this is all connected. So let's do this. Um, I'm going to leave everybody on a teaser, and then you and I are going to schedule another one very soon. like Let's get this in pretty quick while this is fresh. As far as time goes, though, let's wrap this one up for today. So if you don't mind, tell my audience where they can find you. We're going to leave them on a big cliffhanger. But the next episode we have, we're going to go balls deep on it.
1: Okay, well, if you just Google my name, you'll find that I've got a website. It's not the best of websites, I don't really maintain it very
0: well. But I this love is my book. Website. I think it's it's quaint, it's perfect. You've got the videos from your spiritualist church, and I, it's brilliant. Oh,
1: well, if you just type in uh, Ian Rubenstein uh, or Dr. Ian Rubenstein, you'll find it's Com. But um, there's my book, Consulting Spirit, which outlines my journey. I will now turn that off. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. Um, yeah i mean what can i say it's my it's my journey
0: i'll link to your so, website for sure okay. so that everybody right. can find you there um but guys stay tuned because him and i are really going to go into it next time man uh, i I can't thank you enough man this has been wonderful your story is fascinating and we are just getting the tip of the iceberg here really looking forward to the next one okay nice to see
1: you. uh we'll, we'll get together again soon Brad, but thank you for your time
0: definitely thank you sir okay cheers absolutely fascinating guy absolutely fascinating story so stay tuned for part two guys it will be released pretty soon here but go show dr ian rubinstein some love he does some incredible work he is if nothing else he's got a wonderful heart and he's got an incredible story so uh go down in the show notes for all of the ways to find him and uh that's how you can do it so uh, as far as this show goes, guys, you can find us at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is where the links to all of the socials will be found, as well as the YouTube video of this will be linked directly from there as well. Patreon's over there, and y'all know how that works. So thank you so much for your contributions. You guys go out into your week this week and get out of that left-hand lane. Do something nice for somebody else. Pick up a piece of litter. Uh, by nice, I mean just buy somebody a cup of coffee. Hold the door open. It's not hard. We live in a society. Let's Let's enjoy each other out here. Uh, if you take nothing else from the show, guys, go out into your world this week and every week, and all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.